folks, as you know, social media censorship is growing. The best way to support our video work for Israel is to subscribe to our video newsletter on PulseOfIsrael.com and to share our videos. If you are already a subscriber, then thank you. Shalom, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, in our eternal and undivided capital, Jerusalem. Today, a very, very special guest, Len Kutterkovsky. Right on. All right. I was afraid I was going to miss that. I had the privilege of meeting Len in the State Department back in Washington, D.C., a few years ago when the world was more sane in so many ways. And definitely the relationship between Israel and the United States of America and the Trump administration was on the right path for a better, better, more safe world for all of the freedom-loving world. I think you can agree with me, right, Len? Absolutely. And here, and I had the opportunity of meeting him then, talking to him about what was going on with the Trump administration regarding Israel, the Middle East. And here is Len in Jerusalem today. So it is a fabulous opportunity to have the to, to be able to speak with you, Len. Shalom. I love, love being here. I'm so happy to see you in, in your backyard. Uh, it's actually a much nicer than the State Department cafeteria. <laughs> That's right. That's where we sat last time. So let's get right into it. Do you appreciate the historic time period you worked in Washington, D.C. for America sure. and for Israel? Of course, uh, of course, uh, uh, would not trade it for the world. It was a special time. Um, a lot of credit goes to President Trump. A lot of credit goes to Secretary Pompeo uh, on being uh, visionary on the issues that we got elected on. And that's that's a very important note for everybody to understand. The American people elected President Trump uh, on, the, on, a, on a pro-Israel agenda, on an agenda uh, that sees America as an exceptional country uh, that it is, and frankly, President Trump wasn't uh, wasn't uh, mincing words when he ran, and uh, he he was very uh, strongly pro-Israel. He was anti-Iran. He was uh, he had strong words to say about China, and uh, the, the thing that made him different than most people who run for president is he actually. Uh, followed through on the policies that he ran on. So, yeah, and on one hand, I'm, I'm proud to be associated with uh, somebody that said what he meant and helped him realize the policy that, that he ran on. Uh, of course, we couldn't foresee a lot of the things that we ended up accomplishing, Abraham Accords being one of them, but we did work toward that goal, and um, I'm so thrilled that we were able to bring a few of these deals across the finish line um, before you know the people had other ideas. So I have so many questions to ask, so little time, so it won't get through everything. So I want to start from, from the end, in a sense, by asking the following. How hard or frustrating was it to try to get through and push through the actual agenda that the Trump administration wanted to accomplish while in power? Even though, again, you again understand you were working, you were an official in the administration, in the State Department. Did everything happen? Easily, or was there a lot of internal challenges? There, there are always challenges. Um, when you're a political administration, any political administration that comes into office, you're, you're a minority in Washington. The majority of people embedded in a government apparatus are permanent employees. They're foreign service officials or career service officials. So they're a pure permanent bureaucracy. And, and that doesn't even uh, uh, t take into consideration the press and all of the people that surround the Beltway that make the, the gears of Washington work. So yeah, of course it was challenging. 
it's it's doubly challenging when you're a Republican administration because um, whether whether your viewers know or not, about nine out of ten people who live and work around Washington are Democrats. So uh, many of you know I worked on Iran policy for uh, about a couple of years, and uh, the people that worked in the Trump administration on Iran policy just a year or two before worked on JCPOA. So of course it was challenging to work with people on the inside. Look, I mean it's it's. Um, uh, one of the keys in getting policy through in Washington is not being afraid to challenge the status quo. President Trump and Secretary Pompeo and a lot of people that I work with were certainly not afraid to challenge the system and uh, the status quo and push the envelope on a lot of issues. And once you solve that riddle of not being afraid of the bureaucracy, you can get a lot of things done. Uh, because after all, you know, you know that you're in Washington for a finite period of time. The people elected you to get certain things done. You don't have all the time in the world. So you may as well use the time you have right. to to see the vision that you ran on through. And and luckily we were able to, you know, uh, work through the challenges. I have to say there are plenty of uh, responsible professional people in the in the federal government uh, that are there just to execute on, on policy. Uh, so, you know, it's not like all or nothing, but definitely challenging to get things that are not uh, part of the conventional wisdom through the system, because you have to convince people that just because we've done these things for 70 years in Israel's case, uh, doesn't mean that there's another way, uh, that there isn't another way. And of course, convincing people that there, there might be another way right. takes, takes some time right. when you don't have a whole lot of time. Right. So, again, starting from the end, can you give us a a laundry list of those policies, plans that you are happy they were able to accomplish and those things that just were not, uh, you feel disappointed they weren't able to get done. Well, you only have a certain amount of time. You walk in the door knowing that you're not going to be able to accomplish everything you want. And you also know that things happen. So you have to react in real time. For sure. Um, but having said that, you know, I, I, I can tell you because I worked a little bit on President Trump's election campaign before he took office. And we had what we call the contract with the American voter. And on that contract with the American voter, uh, we spelled out the types of things that we're going to be working on and the voters could hold us accountable at the end. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I look, I, I can't tell you that we accomplished every single bullet point on that contract, but we certainly did quite well because we focus like a laser beam on those things that we promise. So what are, what are we proud of? Uh, there's a lot to be proud of, frankly. Uh, well, let's start backwards. Abraham Accords, four peace agreements in a span of a few months. Um, you, that's unprecedented. You know, nobody, nobody could predict that um, that would that would become reality right. for sure. Right. And, uh, and a true game changer for the Middle East because a totally change in paradigm of relations. No question different than the peace deals with Egypt and Jordan, which are cold peace, not between peoples, which are between governments. Absolutely. No, no question. No question about that. And, um, and, and the paradigm shift is actually something that, that we did consciously try to, to work on through the entire administration. Did not really knowing that what we're going to end up with Abraham Accords, but we did want to change the framework mm. of how the conversation about the Middle East took place. That, you know, of course, the most obvious difference is that before the Trump administration, peace in the Middle East had to run through the Palestinian uh, The creation government. of a Palestinian state. 
Uh, exactly. So two-state solution, right? That was right. The, that's the no paradigm. peace in the Middle East unless there's a creation of Palestine. Right. And and what we what we uh, decided is we're not going to allow the Palestinian uh, leadership to dictate what peace in the Middle East looks like. Right. Now, the the way that that worked um, is again, President Trump said when he ran that he's going to rip up the Iran deal. Um, so in many ways, our policy on Iran, because he did end up ripping up the Iran deal right. and instituting probably the most historic pressure campaign uh, on the world's top state sponsor of terrorism. And this is not just the political guy saying that. The State Department itself has declared the Iranian regime since 1984, I believe, as a, as, as a, as a government sponsor of terrorism. So they're they're the reigning champ, you know, for almost forty years, uh, and um, so we we decided that unlike the Obama administration, which uh, thought that they could uh, solve the Middle East by anchoring its policy to making nice with Iran, we knew that also that in order to make peace in the Middle East, we had to solve the Iran issue. So we worked on Iran. We were we. We took us out of the ridiculous deal that did not guarantee that Iran would not attain a nuclear weapon in the yeah. end, which threw billions and billions of dollars at the world's top state sponsor of terrorism, uh, which continued to attack our interests, continued to attack Israel, our other allies in the region, uh, develop missiles, um, assassinate people around the globe. So it didn't really make sense to us. And in a way, working on the Iran policy and um, pivoting to back to our relationships, our traditional friendships in the region. Uh, if you recall, President Trump's first trip was to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, and so that was, that was a big signal saying that, you know what, um, let's go back to the basics. Our values and our interests align more with our traditional allies than they do with Iran. And um, we began to rebuild trust with our friends here in the region. Israel, the Gulf Arab states, and through the trust that was built uh, on all of us working on the Iran issue, I, I think all of those uh, countries started to see each other as potential partners. So in the beginning, it was security issues that were things that they had in common. But slowly, they, they started to see other possibilities, business possibilities, you know, re cultural possibilities, re religious possibilities, the whole Abrahamic uh, origin of both Arabs and Jews became to take root through many meetings that originally started on the Iran issue. Right. And eventually, I think people kind of realized that there's more that um, Israelis and Gulf Arabs have in common than, than they do different. I, I have to tell you, there are two anecdotes which I think would be interesting. I, I remember um, doing, you know, talking about the possibilities of peace here in the Middle East with a Arab diplomat at some point during the administration. And uh, he said, you know, if you asked me five years ago, you know, what is what what is the biggest destabilizing force in the region for us, the Arabs? I would say the I word, Israel. They wouldn't even pronounce Israel. Mm. But if you ask me today, what is the big, biggest problem in the Middle East? It's also the I word, it's Iran. Uh, and so uh, we, we kind of were able to break through a lot of the uh, taboo topics because Iran was obviously the common thread, the common, um, you know, the, the, the predominantly um, top issue for 
both Israel and its Arab neighbors. And, and I think that led to com productive conversations that ended up in being actually peace agreements. Are you, since you brought this up, we'll stick on it. Are you worried that the accomplishments you were able to make as part of the Trump administration and the State Department are now being walked back <laughs> and will go back to where it was or even worse? Yeah, I, I'm, there's there's some concern about the posturing that the Biden administration is doing publicly. You know, for a while they wouldn't even say the words Abraham Accords. Uh, they they finally have, uh, and that's because of public pressure. But I really think that the success of those policies is in the hands of Israel, is in the hands of the Emirates, Bahrain, uh, Sudan, Morocco, all of the people here in the region. Dare I say Saudi Arabia? Uh, all of the people here in the region that have the most at stake. So it, it's not up to the Biden administration or anybody else to decide if the Abraham Accords stick or not. It's up to the people here. So yeah, I, I might, it would be nice if the Biden administration uh, picked up where we left off and uh, were, was working toward bringing other countries along and perhaps getting them across the finish line. I hope they do that. Um, uh, Secretary Blinken has said that they're going to build on, on those things, um, but uh, we'll see. You know, their actions will speak louder than words, uh, and uh, for, for me and uh, folks like me, you know, we're certainly going to hold them accountable from the outside. Listen, one of the most worrying things showing that their actions are not following their words was one of the first decisions made with the, new, with the Biden administration where it shut down, and forgive me if I'm not using the correct terminology or the right numbers, the, the special Abraham Accords fund, which I think out of $10 billion, looks like a huge fund that was set up specifically to help fund joint projects between the, the countries that made, uh, that made the deals between Israel and, and those uh, Sunni Muslim countries. And they shut that down, that, that fund. So, and, and again, I don't know how people don't see the hypocrisy. Here you have an administration, the left, the Democrats who preach peace. Well, you can't say more about trying to achieve peace in the Middle East than putting up $10 billion to achieve peaceful relations and, and joint projects between what used to be enemy states, between Israel and the Sunni Muslim countries. Um, so the question is, isn't that sign enough of the direction that the Biden administration is going? And it's not necessarily interested in peace, but in Closing back up with Iran, stopping the, the, the peaceful normalization agreements with the Sunni Muslim countries, and returning to the whole, ha everything has to go through uh, the creation of Palestine state for the future of the, of the Middle East? I, I, think, um, I think philosophically, they are where you describe they are. Um, they believe that the last four years were an anomaly in how to achieve peace in the Middle East. Of course, it flies in the face of reality, what's actually taking place. But I believe that, you know, that they do think of the two-state solution as being the anchor of Middle East policy. Even though it's been proven a fallacy. I, I dare I say I, I, it might be kind of a religious belief in that philosophy. Um, so I, I think they're trying to reverse time by going back into JCPOA. They're They're trying to undo things that that we've done that seem to challenge the, the conventional wisdom of what they've been doing for many decades. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't say they're doing it nefariously. I think they really believe that uh, their way is the best way to achieve uh, peace. And of course, from an American perspective, our national security has to come first. And um, th this, is, this is the way I kind of see that they're probably looking at the issue. Um, so they're, they're, they see the JCPOA deal 
as, and they keep repeating the same words, as uh, permanently and verifiably blocks all paths to a nuclear weapon for, for, for Iran. It does not. It's not even, it's not even, it's not a treaty. We know that. Right. Uh, it's not, um, some of the sunsets have already uh, begun. Sunsets in the agreement, meaning uh, the, the expiration of the types of sanctions that were put in place as part of the agreement. So Iran today can buy and sell weapons to China or Russia, can, you know, uh, serious, sophisticated weapons like tanks, jets, helicopters. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about dangerous, deadly weapons. Th that's part of the deal. They're allowed to do that as part of the deal. In a couple of years, another sunset will expire. By year 2030, according to this deal, all of the, all of the sunsets will expire, and Iran will legally be able to pursue a nuclear weapon. And of course, that's not acceptable. So, but but the but the administration really believes that the deal solves that, and in the name of diplomacy, or at least the perception of diplomacy, um, they are they have they have persuaded themselves and the Europeans that uh, that is the best way forward to to protect American national security. We of course disagree strenuously on that. Uh, we don't think that's uh, appropriate or protects American national security. I've written a number of articles on this issue. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, um, but it is what it is. So there's some things you can do on the inside of government, some things you can do on the outside of government, and we'll do what we have to do to keep pressure on them to do the right thing for not just Israel, but America's national security and the national security of our allies here. Right. So let's move on from Iran. I know you were very involved specifically in Iran, and you continue to be involved in Iran. So I don't know if we have time, we'll go into that. But the other major policy that uh, did not move forward, even though it was worked on, was the Trump deal of the century and sovereignty in Judea and Samaria, parts of Judea and Samaria, etc. Uh, any feelings of disappointment and how things ended up on that on that front? Well, you know, yeah, of course. And again, just a caveat. I actually, we, we sat down and we were talking about this. Absolutely. And I remember and one of the things you told me, Avi, you, there are good things. You, you, you're not totally going to like it, but but there's some good things. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm on board. I, I totally accept that. So let's go. So, yeah, um, obviously there's no perfect deal for everybody. Um, we did put in a good faith effort in trying to, again, think outside the box, uh, outside of what, has been done over the last 70 years and trying to broker some sort of normalcy, some sort of peace and prosperity between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. So what that looked like, you know, is an imperfect product and we looked at as a beginning of a conversation, but we actually did break down things beyond just kind of 50,000 foot view, uh, look at the deal. We, we broke things down for, based on specific projects that could be initiated on day one if, if both parties came to a deal. And not just Israelis and Palestinians, Israelis and uh, Egyptians, Jordanians, uh, the people in the region, things that would benefit the region. There were actually $50 billion worth of specific projects that we put on the table wow. to be able to start a conversation. If only the Palestinian leadership would say yes to a deal. They haven't done that. We know they haven't done that. That's been, that's why others term this the deal of the century because it's been so hard to attain. And in the end, you know, you can't have a deal where one of the parties isn't interested in the deal. So, uh, am I frustrated? I'm not frustrated uh, that we put in a good faith effort in trying to bring about a 
better, more peaceful, more prosperous future for the people in this region. I am certainly not frustrated by that. I'm proud of the work and I'm proud of the team that worked on these specific issues. A lot of smart people, a lot of people of good faith who care about Israel actually um, have tried to um, to change the paradigm and what it's been and to actually think differently and, and bring about a better product. Now, you know, there's only so much you can do from the United States. Uh, people on the ground have to accept and start talking and and, and implement the plan. You know, it's one thing to have a plan. It's another thing to execute on the plan. We can't do that for, right. for anybody. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would have been better for the Palestinians, frankly, if they accepted the good deal that it was, at least to start talking about positive solutions. Uh, they certainly would have gotten the benefit of a lot of financial um, aid, not just from the United States, but from the, its Arab neighbors and Israel as well, and that would have been better for the Palestinian people. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the old adage still stands, you know, Palestinians haven't missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That's right. Uh, um, that's, 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 that's unfortunate for the Palestinian people, but I, I don't regret trying. And I think the hard work, the details of what we put together are still there. Hopefully, you know, someone somewhere down the road will pick up on where we left off and we're going to, you know, hopefully try and solve this at one point, but we can't solve it for the people. The right. people have to do right. it themselves. Say, yeah, I like to say you can't, you, can all, you can't help those who don't want to help themselves. So moving on from that deal of the century, which, again, I think I remember sitting there and telling you, yeah, it's, uh, Arabs are going to say no. <laughs> well, you, you know, you were wrong in some extent because yeah. a lot of Arabs did say yes. It's the Palestinians no, some, that said the, no. I mean, the, the Palestinian Arab leadership was going to yeah. say no. Let me clarify. Yes, 100%. Because, again, what, what the Abraham Accords proved is that to many of the Arab countries, especially the Sunni Arab Muslim countries, the Palestinian Arab issue is a thorn in the side that's stopping them from moving forward. So yeah, they want to be able to move forward with Israel. And it's the Palestinian Arabs themselves that make, continue this issue and never, and, and never say, uh, never want to end it. Yeah, I mean, the Palestinian leadership, um, unfortunately, uh, has got the Palestinian people stuck in time. And, you know, I can't tell you at what point the Palestinian people will decide that their leadership doesn't represent them or they want something different. Um, certainly Hamas is not interested in a two-state solution even. So I, I don't know what deal there is to make with Hamas. Uh, I think the the way to solve Hamas is to solve Iran. Uh, that's that's who provides them with rockets. That's who funds them. Uh, that's that's who, you know, as a matter of fact, Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Same Jihad, thing. all of these actors, they're all, they're all connected to Iran. So in many ways, uh, peace in the Middle East has to go through Iran. Uh, and that is, as you said, you know, that is something that I worked on. That is something I continue to work on because I, I truly believe that that is the game changer here in the region. You know, once the regime in Iran can no longer uh, fund its terrorist proxies. Uh, create, That's the first bowling pin that has to be, that has to be I, hit I, down. I think so. I think so. And maximum pressure did a lot to diminish its power in the region. Uh, you know, we, we tracked, uh, you know, their, their their money during the Trump administration. I mean, you had Hezbollah fighters that that had, you know, like um, uh, tzedakah boxes in, in grocery stores. 
you know, begging for money from, right. from people because their money was dr dr uh, drying up. Right. You had fighters in Syria that were saying, you know, this is not the same Iran of a couple of years ago right. because they couldn't afford to pay their fighters in Syria. Right. So it, it, it was working. I think right. it would have been good. Uh, look, the regime, I think, won the lottery when the Trump administration did not get a second term. Uh, that is the only card they had left to play. Right. Uh, if the Trump administration stayed in office. And John I, Kerry was telling them all along, don't play along because we're going to be back. Un unfortunately. Behind, behind the back. He, he, he didn't know that they're going to be back, but there's no question that he was whispering in Zarif's ear. Right. Um, I, know we, I know we have to end. A final question. Oh, just one little caveat there. In... I believe Iran has to be the first has to be the first uh, a bowling pin to, to to fall down to be able to change the Middle East one hundred percent. I still don't believe the two state solution is ever going to work, but we will be able to have peaceful relations with our Palestinian Arab neighbors. That's just the only caveat I have on that. But the final question I want to ask you: Do you have any insight to us on what happened the night of the 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 rollout of the the recognition of the U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty in Judea and Samaria, where from what we've heard, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu thought he was going to leave there and be able to already uh, apply sovereignty in Judea and Samaria, and then all of a sudden throughout the night things changed and there was pressure and it was pushed off a number of months and then it never happens. Any insight into what was going on there? I can't tell you what happened that night, but I can tell you that our thinking was. Um, along the lines of a, of a long-term um, solution to to the issues here in the region. So we're, we're playing the long game. And uh, one of the things that we were tracking is, yes, this is one of the issues, obviously, that um, Bibi Netanyahu ran on here during the election. Uh, we knew that that's what he wanted. But we also knew that we were working on paradigm-shifting deals that ended up being the Abraham Accords. Uh, and the Palestine. Which he didn't know at that time, supposedly. Well, I, I can't tell you what he knew, what okay. he didn't know. Okay. But um, but the bottom line is that we had a number of um, projects that we were working on, and uh, we thought that in the long term that uh, the issue of Judea and Samaria uh, is going to be solved probably you know somewhere down the line in terms of uh, along the lines of what President Bush, uh, President Bush sent a letter to, to Eric Sharon at right. some point, kind of outlining the the framework of what eventually will probably be uh, the trade-off for Israel. So yes, Israel will get to keep some of the um, uh, some of some of the large settlements in Judea and Samaria. You know, there'll probably be some sort of a real estate tra trade-off for the Palestinians. That was probably going to end up the way we solve the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. But we also knew we didn't want to sabotage what we had Abraham going Accords. with the other Muslim countries. Got it. So there was the fear that if moving forward with a, uh, recognizing sovereignty of Judea areas of Jansen area would, 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 would uh, neuter the Abraham Accords. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, and you don't have to listen to me, the uh, Emiratis have said that's the primary reason why they decided to act on the Abraham Accords is because they were concerned that uh, you know, Judea and Samaria will become right. annexed, or the biggest question mark was because I remember at that ceremony, the joint the joint press conference between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, President Trump, there were representatives of the Sunni Muslim countries there. So there was, in a sense, some feeling like, oh, they are on board with it in one way, shape, or form because they are they are witnessing the actual ceremony. But uh, obviously, there's behind the scenes. Yeah, and look, it's it's a it's a complicated issue for the United States. Um, 
plus the United States is becoming more and more, um, um, I don't know, uh, split on the issue of Israel, unfortunately. Right. You know, for a long time, we were able to say Israel is a bipartisan issue. And we still hope, and I think it's for the best in the best interest of the United States and Israel, that Israel stays a bipartisan issue. I, I, I am sad to report to you that, unfortunately, um, it, it is becoming less and less a bipartisan issue. Right. Uh, you have a, a distinct uh, portion of the Democratic Party that is not looking at Israel as an ally. They're looking at Israel as an oppressor, as as part of their, you know, kind of the the matrix of, um, of, of you know, v v you know, victimization of minorities. They commingle the BLM issue, the Black Lives Matter issue, with the issue of. Um, uh, Israel and, and Palestine. You'll right. see. You'll see plenty of banners saying "Free Palestine" at BLM right. rallies. Uh, that that is that is unfortunately becoming a um, the the driving force in a lot of democratic politics. Yeah. Um, so even President Biden or Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi, I can tell you that they right now represent the driving pol political force in their own party. Yeah. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Right. Um, there are still Democrats who view Israel as a, as a core ally and are doing their best to keep the extremists in their party and um, in check. But but that is a worrisome sign going forward. Right. Len, uh, you have to go. You have another interview coming up. Uh, there are plenty of questions I still want to ask you about. Love to continue the conversation to be able to to delve into all, all the insights you have. So hopefully another time. Of course. In the meantime, one, thank you so much for all the work you did during those four years. Truly historic. I'm a big believer that, again, things take time, like you know as well. And even if things are going a little backwards, the time will come. Where th things are going to move forward. Um, again, it could be my religious uh, faith background. Things you. are going to move forward. And you were a huge part a huge step in moving things forward for the benefit of the whole freedom loving world not just not just israel and america so thank you very much and good luck on everything you're working on now which we'll have to so talk much. about another time thank you everyone thank you so much for watching signing off for another episode of the pulse of israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland i hope you really enjoyed this please share this video fabulous insight signing off shalom from the holy land of israel pulse of israel frontline videos from the holy land support our work by donating today